0: Lord, we just come before you. We thank you for the opportunity to come tonight. We ask you to be with Loretta as as she's having to heal from this uh, injury that she had from her fall. We ask you to bless this time as we look at your word and study, and we just thank you in Jesus' name, amen. Deuteronomy 22, verse 1. You shall not see your brother's ox or his sheep go astray and hide yourself from them. You shall in any case bring them again unto your brother. And if your brother is not nigh unto you... Or if you do not know him, then you shall bring it into your own house and it shall be with you until your brother seek after it and you shall restore it to him again. In like manner shall you do to his donkey and you shall do to his raiment and with all lost things of your brothers which he has lost and you have found, shall you do likewise that you may not hide yourself. You shall not see your brother's donkey or his ox fall down by the way and hide yourself from them. You shall surely help him to lift them up again. So we're going to look at these, these restrictions. This, this whole chapter is a, a number of laws that God is giving them. For those who have been with us since the beginning, this is a duplicate of Leviticus that we studied about two years ago. So you may or may not remember this, but we were going to cover this. It's been, been covered pretty much before. It says, if you see your brother's ox or his sheep astray or, or lost, wandering around, you shall not hide yourself... But in in any case, you shall go up unto your brother. In other words, you see his animals kind of just wandering. They broke through the fence or whatever, and they're wandering around. But you see these animals wandering around. You're to help him gather up his animals. Or if you know that it's his animal, you're to help send it back to his farm or his property. And this is something that God is teaching about the respect for your fellow. In this case, he says brother, your fellow citizen. You find their stuff wandering around. You were to return that. You weren't to. You weren't to go. What is? What's the sentence? of children's go finders, keepers, losers, weepers. That was not what God was advocating. It goes. You found it. It doesn't belong to you. Return it. You know this sounds like how this. It sounds like the, almost like Newborn babies, and you're, and he's teaching them all the laws that they have probably haven't heard before, or have they heard before? Technically, they should have heard them before, but we've talked about this. Deuteronomy is right before they're going back into the promised land. So it's been about 40 years since they've heard these laws being given at Mount Sinai. Oh, yeah. That's why I said this is all given in Exodus and Leviticus. And we will bounce back occasionally to look back and say this is where this was gone. And that's why I say those who have sat with us for the the whole time that we've been doing this, these are going to sound so familiar because we've already talked about them. But that's what Deuteronomy means. It is second giving. This is Moses giving a very long message to the people and saying, okay, your parents should have told you this. You should have learned this over the last 40 years. But in case this is going to be brand new to you, I'm reviewing all of God's rules with you. And he's going to review pretty much everything that was in Exodus and Leviticus. So we're going to see this again, and we're going to see this... Pretty much for quite a while, it's going to be very much a repeat of what we've already heard. Now, some of the people are fairly new, so it's not going to be as much of a review. You said it was second giving. Duets, two. Deuteronomy, second law, second giving of the law. Moses wrote this book. But here we see in, he says, if their animals are wandering around, you return it. And it says, if you don't know who they belong to, you take them in. Not for the purpose of keeping them, but to keep them healthy. Because just as it has always been, if an animal is wandering around, there's a great chance, especially for a domesticated animal to get hurt or to starve. You do not you know, let the animals wander around because they're not equipped to handle it. So he says, if you don't know who it belongs to, you bring it in and you take care of it until somebody comes around looking for it. And when they come around looking for it, you give it back to him. And that's what it says in the end of verse 2. And he says, and you shall restore it to him again. And, you know, if you will keep it with you until your brother seek after it, and you shall restore it to him. You're not going to charge him for the feed that you gave. You're not going to charge him for, for the lodging of his animal because it was lost. And this is kind of the idea of do unto others that Jesus is going to teach later on. You know, you found, this, you found somebody's possessions. You keep them until so you can return them. Because you would expect and hope that somebody's gonna do the same for you. And he says specifically, you shall not hide yourself. You can't, you don't close your eyes and say, Nope, never saw it. Never saw that animal wandering through my through my front yard and and mooing in my door. <laughs> never saw it. That's not what he's saying to do. He's saying you you take care of it. You and because people could say, you know, well, I I can barely keep my own animals taken care of, and you want me to take care of this flock that came meandering you know, from somebody's farm, and I don't know where it came from. And this is by having these rules in place saying you're to return back, you're taking care of each other, basically saying take care of each other. And this is something that is very true in the scriptures. God takes care of people. He takes care of the poor. He takes care of those who can't take care of themselves. And in this case, he's saying take care of each other in general, not just take care of the poor, but for whatever reason, these, this guy's property is wandering around. You take care of it. Then in verse 3, and he goes, In like manner you shall do to his donkey, and you shall do to his raiment, and all lost things of your brother which he has lost, and you have found, shall so you do like in like manner. You may not hide yourself from himself. You find their coach. You find any of their animals. You find any of his possessions. You're to return it if you know who it is, and you're to return it. And if not, you keep it in your possession safe, until somebody comes along and says, hey, I've lost this, you know, I've been looking for. And we see a good example of this when Saul, the first king of Israel, is sent out by his father to look for his lost donkeys. They got, some, they got out of the field somehow and he's wandering around trying to find where, 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 where are our donkeys, you know, and he's, and he's doing just what this says. He's going around saying, hey, I've lost my lost my herd. you know. Have you seen them? Have you got them? And he's hoping to find the person who has taken them in and given them provender and and kept them safe so that he can then take them home. We are to take care of one another. We are to protect one another. We are to care for one another. Not quite to the point where we take care of everything about them, but if something is lost or needs protecting, we are to help. And it doesn't necessarily mean that we're going to dump all of our money to help them, but it does mean if they are their property's lost, we're going to get it back to them. And not go, nope, never saw your stuff as it's sitting in your in your barn and so that you can keep it. And that would be the world's way of doing it. Well you lost your stuff. You weren't you weren't uh, keeping a close enough eye and now you've lost it and it's your fault, so I'm keeping it because you're at fault. That's not the way God deals with us or has us to deal with one another. Then it says and if you see your brother's donkey or his ox fall down by the way and hide yourself from them, you shall surely, you shall not hide yourself from them, and you shall surely help lift them up. In other words, they fall into a ditch or a pit, and you see your, your, your uh, neighbor, your brother struggling to get that animal out of the pit, you go help. And that's just common sense. We, we need to help one another. But in our day and age, we're starting to see more people not helping one another, and sometimes they have, in our, especially in America, that you have good reasons, because if you help somebody, you might get sued if, you do, if something gets hurt or damaged. And yet, God says, help. And, and that was what His rule was to do. I like number five. You like number five. All right, we're getting into number five. Number five. The, a woman shall not wear that which pertains to, unto a man, neither shall a man put on a woman's garment for all that do so are an abomination unto the Lord your God. This verse has incorrectly been interpreted that women cannot wear pants. And that has been out there for many years, out there saying women can't wear pants. And I always challenge somebody when I heard that. I'm going, okay, I challenge you to put on the women's pants and tell me, tell me how they're cut for men and that they fit men. This, this verse has, is a prohibition of cross-dressing. It really yeah. is. Yeah. A prohibition of that uh, cross-dressing and cross-gender is prohibited by God. Yeah. Men do not wear women's clothes, right. Well, yeah. but, but let's break this sentence down a little. This, sentence, this statement, down a little bit more. A woman shall not wear that which pertains unto a man. Literally, what this is saying is, will not handle the clothes that he has. But it's talking about, in this case, man here is mighty warrior it's really referring to armor and weapons of war so from this statement I would also state that women should not be in the military especially on the front on the front lines you know and we're starting to push that we are really starting to push that attitude of people going under the front lines and this is what that verse is prohibiting and men should not wear women's garments the other side of this coin is in the idol worship for the fertility gods, it was very common for cross-dressing to happen. And they, the women in these fertility ceremonies would put on armor and the men would put on dresses or women's women's clothing in these fertility. Because again, remember, that's a satanic activity and Satan is trying to blend the genders and destroy God, what God has made distinct. So this verse is really referring mostly to that religious idol, idol worshiping but he's also prohibiting that idea of cross-dressing and so we want to be aware of this this problem that is happening and a lot of these verses that we're going to be covering in this chapter are referring to religious practices of the canaanite people and saying you're not going to be like them and there's real reasons behind these verses as we're going to see this one says don't, don't do what the, the fertility God practices are. Avoid that. Then it says in verse 6, If a bird's nest chance to be before you in the way, in, in any tree or on the ground, whether they are young ones or eggs, and the dame sits upon the young and, or upon the eggs, you shall not take the dame with the young, but you shall in any ways let the dame go and take the young with you, and it may be well with you, And that you may prolong your days this is a two-part look on this Uh, if you're going to you're not going to take the entire family is what he's saying and you're definitely not taking the mother that's taking and caring for the for the young birds because if you take her you've killed the bird you've killed the young as well you can take the young because the mother bird can always have more more birds but you're not to take her and let her young die and you're not to take the whole family. This is God's protection upon them. And again, this has, this has a, a play again toward the worship of the idols that would take and destroy entire families of, of animals and, and work against that. It's just against nature to destroy an entire family. So, But he's saying uh, the protection. God cares even for the animals of this world. Okay? And we want to keep this in mind, God's showing you're going to care for your fellow brother because I care for you. You're going to care for the animals because I care for the animals. You're going to care for genders genders, and, and roles because God cares about them. He put them in place. And we want to keep that in mind that God has a place for genders. Now, we are very quickly trying to blend the genders. Uh, clothing are starting to become just one, one type. Uh, we have immodesty from both sexes out there trying to draw lustful thoughts. We have the whole messing up of the gender uh, roles out there. The, nobody knows what it means to be a father or mother hardly at all anymore. Uh, they just don't understand any of these things. That God created men and women to do certain jobs. That doesn't mean that a woman can't go out and work and earn a living. It doesn't mean that a man can't stay home. But in general, men are equipped to be in the workplace, in the work world, and the the day-to-day battles and struggles that the work world brings out. And the woman is more equipped to handle the family and the raising of the kids and, and, and teaching them how to live. Now there are exceptions out there, and there are valid reasons for these, you know, for the other way to go. But. God has reasons for it. He's made the man to be the head of the family. He's made them to be the head. And we see there's a w- different way of thinking between men and women in, in a general, general sense. And again, when we say general, there's not exception, There's always exceptions to the rules. You know, men are generally less emotional than women. Now, yes, there are men that are more emotional than women, and there are women that have practically no emotions. You know, but in general... It's true men usually are more you know women look at them and say that they're just cold they're they're calculating and it's true men generally are more cold and calculating because they're making their decisions based on, Logical facts. I've got to kill this animal and, and take it home. And you get people that go, oh, you can't kill that poor Bambi's mom. You know, you can't kill Bambi's mom. How can you do that? I'm hungry. <laughs> as long, I have no problem with killing any animal as long as you want to eat it. And if you want to just kill it and put a trophy on your wall, there's a problem. That's a problem. But if you're hungry and you're going out to kill an animal, then that is taking care of your family and doing what needs to be done. And God is all for that. He says so. We need to understand God's have these rules and he's putting them in place for reasons to protect. Men rationalize more than women. In general. You got to be careful on an absolute, you made it an absolute statement and it's, in general, it is true. But we need each other in all those decisions as well because there are times when my wife would pick up on something that I never picked up because of her. Social side and her and her emotional side. She's going, "Did you see that look? Did you see that action?" I'm going, "No, I didn't see anything." And men are oblivious to to social signs because that's not how we are designed. We are more of an independent type of person where we want to go out and hunt. Where we're oftentimes more isolated and, and happy being isolated and women are more social in general. And again, we talk about generalities. There's always exceptions to every one of these rules. There's always somebody who doesn't fit. And especially husband has to learn that sometimes when the wife is talking about a problem, they're not looking for an answer, they're just trying to talk through it. And then if you try to give them an answer, they get upset with you because they're not really looking for an answer. They're just, that's how they're processing. You know, we're sitting there as men saying, well, would you just get to the bottom line and tell me what it is you want? You know, I've been listening to you now for five minutes. When are you going to get to the point? And the woman's only beginning to get started on trying to tell you what's going on. And there's nothing right or wrong about either one. And both are are needed in in a relationship, which is why God made the woman in the first place was to be the helpmate for man, to help the man fill in the places where they were weak. All right, verse 8. When you build a new house, then you shall make a battlement for your roof that you may that you bring not blood upon your house if any man fall from thence. Battlement is not really the right word for this, but it is a parapet, a, a low wall all the way around your roof. And remember, in that area they made flat roofs and they spent a lot of time on their roofs and because it was, a, number one, it was safer. Uh, you were up from any snakes and scorpions and everything else. I'm surprised we don't do it out here in the middle of the desert as much, you know. But it's not the way Americans build houses. But in their area, you would build a flat-roofed house, and you would usually take your baths on your top of the roof because it was up and out of most people's sights. You would, you oftentimes would put a guard, small garden garden up there, uh, but it was away from wildlife, and it was a place that you could just get away from things. And so it says, you're not going to have a flat roof that somebody can walk off of. You're going to put some kind of small wall around it. So, and the reason is, so that you bring not blood upon yourself by somebody falling off. And basically saying, if you don't put something around it, you're at fault if they fall off. Again, common sense, but this is not something that was done in in their world at that time. Remember, when we go through these rules and laws, they make common sense to us. They make perfect sense to us but they're different from what was going on. They just had a roof. If you fell off, it was your fault. You were you know, you were too too dumb to pay attention to what you were doing. It's not my problem. You fell off my roof. So God's saying, "No, you're going to care for your brothers by building a wall around it so that you're protecting them." And this is all about that caring. Remember we talked about the idea of an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, and we think of that as being such a harsh harsh rule and yet in their day and age, that was a, they they laughed at the Jews that they couldn't go in and, and totally devastate somebody that hurt you because that was what they did. You you hurt them, you broke their finger and they came in and took everything you owned away from you just because you, you know, you you ended up breaking your finger by falling on their rake or something. And God said, no, if you break your finger, you can break their finger, but that's as much as you can do. So it was, a huge restriction and it was a loving restriction that says you're going to care for your brothers and not abuse them just because you're stronger and just because you can. So all these rules are things that are going in out there that God's saying you're going to protect. Verse 9, you shall not sow in your vineyard, your vineyard with diverse seeds lest the fruit of your seed which you have sown and the fruit of the vineyard be defiled. In other words, you're not going to plant grapes and then fill in the fill in the rows with other, other seeds. Now this sounds kind of strange, and it, but again, this goes to uh, worship of the gods of agriculture. You mixed your seeds, and that was to ensure that you got a good harvest from their gods. And God said, you're not going to be like those people in Canaan. they there, because it makes sense to a farmer fill fill in all your land and Get as much as you can out of the land. So from that perspective, it's not necessarily wrong, but what was going on in Canaan was it was part of their idolatry practice that if you filled in that land with a second type of seed and you made your prayers and your offerings to, the, to their gods, you were going to be guaranteed a big crop. All right. So this is, a, this is again prohibition against you shall have no other gods before me. Um, you shall not plow with an ox and a donkey together. Here we have a picture of God just saying protecting animals. Because if you plowed with an ox and a, and a uh, donkey, the yoke number one would be very hard to work them together because you got an ox about this tall and a donkey about this tall. So the poor donkey you know, is kind of lifting up his head and barely touching the ground. And actually, I have seen the pictures of this in the Middle East and Africa where they have put an ox and a donkey together. And the poor donkey is barely touching the ground because he's yoked to this thing that's so high. it has got his back feet, you know, and the front feet barely touch the ground, if at all. So this is a literal protection of the animals. The guy's saying, you're not going to be like this spiritually this also shows us that we are prohibited from being unequally yoked ourselves for much the same reasons if we get yoked up with somebody whether it's in a marriage relationship or a strong friendship relationship or a business relationship we have struggles that we have to deal with because we as Christians are going to think with a biblical worldview and and the person that's not a Christian is going to have the world's view and this is really bad in a business plan where you want to try to be honest and and moral with your people and your and your partner just wants to make a buck no matter what, no matter what, and that means they'll cut corners wherever they can and, and you know oftentimes sell things that are of inferior quality and we see this all the time when Christians get together say anything to sell the product are you going to be honest in what you're doing as a Christian we have to be honest in what we're doing and it is something that we need to be very much aware of if we are unequally yoked in this unequal yoke. God desires us to be Christian in all that we do in all of our life. And this is something we need to understand. God is not somebody that we just go and and worship on Sunday morning and put on the shelf until the next Sunday morning. He is God of our work life, our family, our sports, our entertainment, whatever, whatever area, he is God and Lord of every area of our life, or he is not God and Lord to us. He must be in every area of our life. And we as humans have a real capacity to compartmentize. Here's what I do for work. I mean, I'll, I'll cheat, steal, and and whatever for work, but when I'm at home, I'm going to try to be an honest person. You know, we think we can do that. In our mind, we think we can do that. But in reality, the world start overflowing, and what you spend your, the bulk of your time doing is going to overflow into the rest of your life. If you're lying and cheating and stealing in business, it will start affecting every other part of your life because it's who you become. Who you worship beca- is who you become, and the scriptures are full of that idea. Whatever you worship is what you become. So when we worship God, we start becoming more like Him. Why? Why? not because even we're trying, but that is who we're trying to please. That's who we are looking to. And when you see these different idol worshiping, whatever you worshiped, you became like. If you worshiped at Ashtaroth, the sex god, you became sexually active, not just inside the worship, but you started becoming that way in your entire life. If you worshiped Moloch, the god of power and industry, you started becoming like, that because that is what you did to live and worship you started being looking for that power and industrial things and doing what was best for that we become what we worship and this is kinda an interesting thing when you think about our world how many people in our world are worshiping entertainment in the television if you know somebody who spends all their time in front of the television and you start looking at the way they live they start emulating what they're seeing on TV. We see this with our kids all the time. Talking about what they see, the acceptance of what they see, the acting out of what they see. We see all these murders on TV and we start seeing people acting out these murders on, in real life. We see the sexual activity with no consequences on TV and they go out and they, they do sexual activity but in real life it has consequences. Added, you know, everything about it, you are, you become what you worship. And we want to be very careful about this. And I mean, Even as I say this, I'm not saying you can't have friends that are ungodly, you can't entertain yourself, but they shouldn't be what you hang out with all the time. An ungodly person shouldn't be your best friend. You, know, they sh- you want friends that are ungodly because who else are you going to evangelize, but they shouldn't be your best friend. Because you're going to become like the people you hang out with all the time. A Christian should be your best friend so that you can have a godly influence in your life. Because you will become like the people you hang out with. And it almost always works that you are drawn down. Very rarely do people draw people up. It very rarely happens. It does happen. And every once in a while you get, well, see, that one worked. Yeah, well... One in a hundred might work, but I wouldn't put my bet that you're going to be the one that's going to pull them up. It's not worth it. Verse 11, you shall not wear garment of diverse sorts such as woolen and linen together. Again, this is one of these things that you know, we kind of have in our day and age if we were really to be careful, we, we have mixed, mixed garments all the time. Matter of fact, we mix plastic in and, and, and real life. Uh, but in this case, again, this is the practice that the priests in the temples for idols did. They mixed together the different woolen and, and flax and all these different garments together and God is saying you're not going to be like them. You're not going to be like the world that you're going into. Verse 12, you shall make you fringes upon the four corners of your vestures wherefore wherewith you cover yourself. And this is Tassels, The tassels at the bottom of their garments. And if you remember when we were in Numbers 15, we talked about these tassels in great detail. In, in Israel today, the Orthodox still put tassels at the bottom of their shirts and pants and stuff. And the number of the tassels that they put on there is 613. Does anybody remember why they would put 613 tassels? That's how many laws there are. 613 laws and each tassel is to remind them of God's laws and that's their prayer shawl. especially still has it and they're all tied up in a certain certain pattern and everything but they put these and the whole purposes of these tassels were to remind them of God's law and they would see these tassels on each other's on their, their own and each other and they would say God's laws God's laws. The things we're covering God's laws. We're supposed to care for each other. We're supposed to be honest. We're supposed to take, we're supposed to be looking at each other with, as brothers and sisters and protect each other. And so we see this picture. And this is when Jesus said, you scribes and Pharisees, you make your tassels large and your phylacteries large. And a phylactery was a box that they put on their forehead or their wrist that would have a word, have a Bible verse in it. And Jesus said, Okay, you're, you're, you're making it look like you're really righteous. You're making these things really big. He goes, but you are far from me. Well, the only reason I know is because I know the practice that they do. Okay, and I know what they have done. 613 laws that they put on. No, it doesn't say it. I'm just saying I know that that's what they did. Again, God's purpose was for them to remember. Remember, remember, remember. This is a the, the big theme in... in deuteronomy the second giving of the laws to remember remember what you've been instructed remember what we've been telling you and again this is why i bring this up exodus at mount sinai they started giving the law then they gave the levitical laws in mount sinai numbers they wander around for 40 years and moses is basically going back and this is his last message to the people just before they cross deuteronomy is his last message just before they cross the Jordan, and he hands over the reins to Joshua. And it's basically, this is one long sermon. He gives this over just a period of a day or two, this whole book. Now, we've been studying it for a long time now, but this is one long message from Moses to the people saying, you're getting ready to go in the promised land, and he knows that he's not going. They know that he's not going, and he's not going because of his sin with the the rock when he struck the rock instead of just speaking to it. And as I've said before, I believe it's even more than that. It's the fact that he would not repent for what he did. Because every time you read about him, talking about it, he, he'll say, I'm not going into the promised land because of you guys. You guys, you made me so mad I struck this rock. He never took responsibility for his sin and never repented of his sin. He always blames the people and because God knew that he would never humble himself and take responsibility, God says, you're not going into the promised land. So this is a serious thing. And, and it also shows us the consequences for unrepented lifestyle. It can damage us to not go through completely. God's intention was originally for Moses to lead the people into Israel and into the promised land and be their leader for a while. But because of his unrepented attitude, God says, you're not going in. Verse 13, if any man take a wife and go in unto her and hate her mm-hmm. and give occasion, occasions of speech against her and bring up an evil name upon her and say, I took this woman and when I came to her, I found that she was not a virgin. Then shall the father of the damsel and her mother take and bring forth the tokens of the damsel's virginity unto the elders of the city of the, in the gate. And the damsel's father shall say unto the elders, I gave my daughter unto this man to be wife and he hates her. And lo, he, sh- he hath given occasion of speech against her, saying, "I found not your daughter a maid or a virgin, and yet these are the tokens of my daughter's virginity. And they shall spread the cloth before the elders of the city, and the elders of that city shall take that man and ch- chastise him, and they shall immerse him a hundred shekels of silver, and give him unto this fa- and give them unto the father of the damsel, because he hath brought up an evil name upon the virgin of Israel, and she shall be his wife." and he may not put her away all his days. But if this thing be true and the tokens of virginity be not found for the damsel, then they shall bring out the damsel to the door of her father's house, and the men of the city shall stone her with stones, that she shall die. Because she has wrought folly in Israel to play the whore in her father's house, so shall you put away evil from you. This is a very strong statement, and we're going to look at this a little bit. I'm going to change some of these old English words into English, current English words so they make a little more sense. If a man takes a wife to go in and to her, and delights not in her, in reality is what it says. He, for some reason, he's not happy with this with this girl. Uh, he goes in and she's not as pretty with her, without her makeup, and he decides that you know he doesn't doesn't like her. just doesn't please her. Doesn't know how to keep home or whatever, you know whatever it might be. You know it says delights. You know she doesn't delight him for whatever reason. It says in in verse 14, and give occasion of speech against her, and this is to speak evil, to malign this woman. Okay, he's spreading rumors, and what he's going to do is he's setting up his case for his divorce, is what he's trying to do, behind her back, saying, you know, hey, you know what? She 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 wasn't a virgin when I married her, and he's telling all these people this. He's he's maligning her, and it says that it gives her an evil name. Now and we know what that means we're not even we don't have to play that one up at all it's like he's he's talking behind her and and making her look uh, look like a harlot making her look easy we would say in our day and he says I took this woman and when I came to her I found out that she was not a virgin this is a serious accusation especially in their day but even in our day if you marry somebody expecting them to be a virgin it's a serious blow to your to your marriage to find out otherwise And so he's going in and saying, you know, this she lied. You know, she's lied to me, and she was committing fornication before before we got married. This is a serious charge he's making against this person because either one of those charges brings the death penalty involved in here. So this is not a lightweight, lightweight lightweight accusation that he's being that he's throwing around out there. He is maligning this girl, so that he's trying to give himself the grounds for divorce, but he's also making it so that. If they finally do to get divorced, nobody's going to want this girl. So he's really destroying this, this person. Uh, it's bad enough just to be divorced in this, day, in, in this day. You're not going to have a hard time. But in this case, he's making it doubly hard because he's destroying her reputation. Nobody's going to want her. Beyond just the divorce, nobody's going to want her. And so it says, Then shall the father of the damsel and her mother take and bring forth the tokens of the damsel's virginity unto the elders of the city gate. Yeah, we're going to explain this a little bit more. In this day, when you got married, the sheet that you first had your intercourse on was saved. It had to be, it was brought out and paraded actually saying, yeah, here's the proof that I married a virgin. Because of the blood from the, from the first intercourse. Uh, now this wouldn't be the only token, it wouldn't be the only thing they had, but this was the major... Token that they would present, and it would be kept by the father of the of the bride to prove if it ever came back that says no, she wasn't a virgin when I got when we got married. Go here is the proof. This was a serious uh, activity. I mean, this was it was. We think of it as being very embarrassing, but it was a it was well. No, you had the you practiced you did it in private, but yeah. the sheet was brought out to prove. That you had married a virgin, and it was brought out and paraded, saying, "This is the proof." And the woman looked at it as a good thing too, because it was saying, "I was what I said I was." And and the man saying, "You know, it's good for me. I You know, we look at it as very weird and strange. This is the proof. I married. I married a virgin." So some poor woman that may have a medical issue that didn't. This is why there was other tokens, okay? And yes, there were those handful that didn't. Didn't happen, but if you didn't have that, that was your best proof. If you didn't have that, then you'd have to have the reputation and the, and the testimony of the, the family, midwife, and all these other sayings saying, No, we know that this has not happened. And if, but this sheet was the best evidence indicator that you had had a virgin, and the father kept it. Her father kept Her it, father. kept it just in case these, because this was not an uncommon thing. For the man to give for his reason for divorce was, would be, well, I found out she wasn't a virgin. And dad, can say and dad, can, oh, yeah, dad would say, no. You're, she was going to be coming back to his home and there was a cost in that. Oh, yeah. But he's saying here, the father was going to produce this evidence. This guy's lying. He's maligning my daughter and here's the evidences that we're going to present. Now remember in Israel, you could not convict somebody of a capital offense on the testimony of one person. So you would have to have multiple testimony on this. And this is the father's answer back. Here's our testimony that she was a virgin. And here's, the, here's all of her friends who knew her that says that she never played around. You know, and, uh, so he would have to produce some, some evidence. But if they couldn't produce these tokens, then she might be in danger of, of death. And uh, so they go in front of the elders. And remember the elders in these cities were like the court. The court. They, they were the ones that made the decisions. You made your case. And in one sense it was probably a better system because unless you bought off the elders and they were supposed to be the head citizens that couldn't be bought off, you, you had people that were actually using logical logic and common sense. Not like the tricks that get played in our current court systems out, out there, and around the world, not just our country, but around the world. And so you brought all the evidence in front of the, the heads of the family, of these families and of the, the, the city. And they would make their decision. And it says that if they ruled against the man, okay, and this is what verse 19, they, they, they see the proof, they go, okay, this is, this, she was a virgin, you're, you're lying about her, you're cheating her. They shall make a nurse, or they will find the man a hundred shekels of silver and give them to the father of the damsel because he has brought an evil name upon a virgin of Israel. And she shall be his wife and he shall not put her away all of her days. Okay, so he will not be able to divorce her even if she gave him valid reason after that to divorce him. He could not do that. Now, a 100 shekels of silver is approximately 63 ounces of silver. Wow. And at our rate of current exchange, that's about $1,100 in a fine. Back in those days. Yeah, that's a big... That's a big, 1100 even in our days is a pretty good-sized fine. Right. But it's a big fine that he's, being, that, is, that he's given to the father. And I can guarantee he's being watched to make sure he treats this woman well. He's going to have to provide for her. He's going to have to treat her as a wife the rest of his days. He cannot get rid of her. This is a serious accusation he has made. And if it's false, he is going to pay by not being able to get rid of her later on he's being held responsible. And God has a lot of this. God, and we've talked about this, God raised the position of women greatly, even in these laws that seem so cruel to us this day, he's raising them up. This guy just couldn't get rid of her by accusing her and throwing her aside. He had to be sure that his accusation had merit. And if not, he was going to pay for it in a big way. Now, if it be found, in verse 20, if it be found the true and the tokens of virginity be not found for the damsel, then they shall bring out the damsel to the door of her father's house, and the men of the city shall rise up and stone her until she dies, because she has wrought folly and played the whore. Okay, so if what he's saying is true, then she was going to die. And again, it's, they're saying they're going to get evil taken away from you. God's, this has been a theme for about the last three chapters. People do evil, it's to be removed completely. And if it's really evil, it was to be totally removed by death. And God had capital punishment for a lot of things that we don't think of as really capital punishment. Adultery, fornication, kidnapping, murder, or all capital offenses. And quick capital offenses. It wasn't you did it and 20, 30 years later you died. It was... You went. You went before the elders, and you better make your case that you're not in it, that you're not guilty, or you were going to die. And remember, we talked a couple weeks ago about accidental death, where you you killed somebody by accident. You had to get to a city of refuge, and there your case would be made in front of the people. That no, I didn't. You know, it wasn't that I hated the guy. The I was swinging my axe, and the axe flew off and, and hit him and he, got, and he, and he died or you know, my animal was running wild, you know, running wild and I couldn't control him and I ran over him and he died, you, know, you made your case. It was an accident. God wasn't going to punish you for an accident, but if you were angry and you didn't like the guy and you had an accident, all of a sudden you have a hard time proving that it was an accident, just as we do in our day. It's hard to prove accidental death if you didn't like the person to begin with. Because there's always this question of, uh-huh, let's, how did this accident happen exactly? Uh, you, you loosened the axe head before you swung it because you knew he was behind you? This is very interesting that God is putting these rules in place to keep people from harming one another. And this was the case. And remember we talked about the perjury laws in Israel. If you perjured yourself in, witness, in, in testimony and it was found out, you got the punishment that the person was going to get that you lied about so if you're in a capital punishment case and you perjured yourself to try to make them look evil and wrong you would be killed that's how serious the perjury charges in god's kingdom was you perjured somebody to say that they stole and they were supposed to return four times what they stole then you would have to be the one giving back four times what was stolen for us as individuals We're to love each other, to care for one another, not seek revenge and everything and let God handle it. From a government point of view, the government's main job is to protect its people. The government is required to punish evil. Required, that is their job, to protect their people from national attack and to protect the innocent from predators. And that's why we have the legal system. That's why God had the capital, capital offense system. The government's job is to protect its people. So it is not a live and let live as far as the government concerned because then they are not doing their job. And the government has a realm that rules apply to them that we could not do. We're not to go out and kill people, but the government is to arrest them, try them, and if they're guilty, execute their punishment but that's not our job to go send them to prison. And it's not our job to go vigilante justice and hang, and, and hang, them, hang them high, you know, it's the government's job to do. We want to keep that in mind that each, each group has its own reason and, and way to live. And we can't apply what God tells us as individuals to do to the government or even to the church because they have different rules and the church's rules don't apply necessarily to the individuals. And the government rules definitely don't belong to apply to the individuals. Paul said that the government has the power of the sword. And that sword does not mean that they just show it. It means that they use it. And what do you use a sword for? To kill, to kill with. And it is authority and it's power. And the government has authority and power. Verse 22. If a man be found lying with a woman married to a husband, then they shall both of them die... Both the man that lie with the woman and the woman, so shall you put away evil from Israel. If a damsel that is a virgin be betrothed to a husband, and a man find her in the city and lie with her, then they shall bring them both to the gate of the city, and they shall stone them with stones that they die. The damsel, because she cried not out, being in the city, and the man, because he has humbled his neighbor's wife, so shall you put evil away from you. So here we start dealing with adultery rules. It says if they are... Both laying together, and they've been, and she is married. That's straightforward adultery. You shall not commit adultery. Then it shows you, they both die. You've caught them in the act. This is why when the woman that was caught in the act of adultery was brought before Jesus, I'm sure his major question is, where's the man? You caught her in the act. Where's the man? Because both have to die. They were not following the law. They expected him to accuse, say kill her, but the law said that they both had to be brought before them. So this is one where they are just lying together. There's no force. There's no, there is no rape in this activity. This is just straightforward consensual sex between a married woman and some other man. Whether he's married or not married, it doesn't matter because it's, one is married in this case. And it says, if a damsel which is virgin is betrothed to a husband and a man find her in the city and lie with her then they shall bring them to go through the gate and you shall stone both of them with both of them okay this is a woman who has been raped in the city and he gives the reason why he says because she cried out not out she did not scream rape in the city in the city there should have been people that could hear her if she had yelled there would have been people to come and rescue her. If she had screamed out, even if she'd been raped and and violated, he would have died but not her because there are provisions against rape, okay? But again, if she doesn't scream out, then they're saying, okay, you participated, you did nothing to stop the activity. And we still have that going on in our courts in this day and age. If you get raped in a in a crowded area, how come you didn't yell out? And people will try to defend it. Well, I was worried about my life and all of this. But still, there's this idea that you didn't do anything to try to stop. And that's what God's saying here. You didn't yell out. You didn't scream out. You didn't try to to prevent it from happening. Verse 25. But if a man find a betrothed damsel in the field, and the man force her and lie with her, then the man only that lay with her shall die, but unto the damsel you shall do nothing. There is there is in the damsel no sin worthy of death, for as when the man rises up against his neighbor and slays him, so is this matter. For he found her in the field, and the betrothed damsel cried, and there was none to save her. In other words, if you're out in the middle of the boondocks, and you know if she yelled out or not yelled out, nobody was there to help her and hear her. Uh, so she would not be guilty of death. This is this is straightforward. Well, this is, the same was rape. The first one was rape, too, but it was in a place where you were in the town, you were in the city. If you yelled out, then people would have you know, grabbed their attention and, and should have been able to stop it. You're in the middle of the field, nobody's there. You could have, cre- you could have cried out all that you wanted, and, and nobody's there, so you're in the middle of the field, you know, or tending the sheep, or in the mountain, or, or, or walking. The man would be guilty, but not the woman. And again, it talks about that force of rape. To think about this God covers just about anything out there that is that can be done to somebody and said you're violating somebody else you're humiliating this woman you're making this person have be basically worthless because if you weren't a virgin as a woman in that day and age you were not marriable even if you had been raped you were not marriable unless you had somebody who really fell in love with you and was going to overlook the event and that didn't you know it could happen and did happen you, Ruth is a great example of that. Somebody who had been married and who was taken by another person who had really fallen in love with her, namely uh, Boaz, who fell in love with Ruth in a very strong way and said, I know who she is. And, she, you know, I'm her near kinsman and I'm going and I want, you know, he wanted her. He just didn't, he wasn't just fulfilling his duty. Right. He had fallen in love with her when he saw her in the middle of the field. <laughs> who is this beautiful woman that's, you know, that's so poor that she's working in my field, you know, and you know, his words indicated that whole thing about taking care of her and letting her work amongst them. So yes, there were people that would take these women anyway, but it was, it was a very hard place even if they weren't at fault in this area. Yeah. Oh, Mary had a hard time. Mary, Mary was not accepted by her people because she was not considered pure. Uh, Jesus was directly accused of being a bastard, and they told him into his face that that's what he was. and it was a big deal they 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 did not look at him as being a you know, how can this guy be even a teacher? you know, we, you know he doesn't have parents <laughs> or I mean, verse twenty eight the last last verse here, if a man find a damsel that is a virgin which is not betrothed and lay with her and lay, lay with her and they be found, Then the man that lay with her shall be given, shall give the damsel's father 50 shekels of silver and she shall be his wife because he has humbled her. He may not put her away all the days of his life. All right. So they have sex outside of marriage. She's not pledged to anybody. She was to become his wife. Yep, And there was there was rules for the way you treated your wife, especially in Israel, you didn't, you know, they had to give her, had to give her her rooms, had to give her her food, you know, even if, even if they never had, you know, relations again from that point on, there were still rules on how she had to be treated. And again, her father's given 50 shekels of silver or approximately five, you know, $566 at today's prices. And because he's humbled her, and it's kind of a dowry. If he, if you are, if he doesn't do what he's supposed to do, the father has the funds to be able to take his daughter back in and and, and uh, take care of her. Uh, now he's going to be in big trouble because he can't he can't divorce her, and the father then could take him out in front of the gates and saying he's not treating my daughter right. He's not giving her, her her room. He's not giving her her food. He's not giving her her raiment. I'm so. Glad so God had lots of rules that said you're going to take care of things. You're going to take care of one another. You're going to be protected. And this is what God has. Because life has great value. God protects it. And this is something in our day and age where life is becoming worthless and people are treating each other with worthless and our government is not protecting the weak as much as it should. And people get divorced all the time and then kids especially if kids are involved, the kids aren't taken care of, the, the spouse is just tossed aside with no no uh, concern, may or may not ever get married or may not, you know, and, and even in our day there's that a divorced person has a stigma attached to him. not as much as it used to be, but there's still even in our day a stigma attached to a divorced individual uh, and this is why God is saying you're going to there's going to be payment for it. There's going to be reasons for it. And we're going to get that last one here. A man shall not take his father's wife nor discover his father's skirts. This is the whole idea of incest and, and relationships within a family. And we saw this back a while ago when we did Leviticus where he really goes into all of it. Is, this is just the tip of the iceberg for it because in Leviticus we talked about you can't, can't sleep with your uncle's wife or your or your sister or your or your in-laws or I mean he goes right down the list that if they're if they're close relationships you don't sleep with them and even if you divorced or she you know and he's passed away you don't take your husband's your your father's wife and you don't take your brother's wife except his death to produce seed for him uh, to keep the name going for your brother They were very, that was about the only place where you could take your, your sister-in-law, but you didn't take your niece, you didn't take your, your daughter, you didn't take your mother, you didn't take your aunt, you didn't, you know, uh, you know, so God has these rules. Why? Because that is their nakedness. That is their, their private area of their life and nobody is to intertwine in that area. And it even goes so deep because when there is a sexual relationship, the reason it's so serious is it brings a union at the very soul level. And we are starting to see the consequences in our day and age of all these casual hookups. People's souls are being ripped to shreds because of the connections and tear apart and connections and tear apart. And if you you keep it even simpler... If you talk to people who have gotten divorced, it's amazing how ripped their souls are because when God glues the soul together and they get torn apart, it's the idea of, you know, we talk about this a lot. God says that you're glued together or welded together. If you glue two pieces of wood together with a good wood glue and you try to break those pieces apart, the glue does not break. Now if you use Elmer's glue or paste it'll break, but you use a good wood glue, what breaks is the wood. And it rips the wood apart and it becomes, the wood is useless. Until you, re, you know yes you might be able to replane it, but it is useless wood as far as it goes. And it's amazing to me how many people I talk to that have had divorces and 10, 20, 30, 40 years later they're still bitter toward the person that they got the divorce in. And there's always, even, even the clean divorces have a bitter edge to them because the soul has been ripped up. It's almost impossible to put it back together again. Well, it can't be put back together again. Once it's torn, it's torn. Once it's torn, it is gone, and you cannot put it together, and it's a ragged edge, and it's a ragged edge on the next relationship and the next relationship until you get to the point where you can't even have a real relationship together because it has been torn so many times. And casual hookups do the same thing. This is why Paul says that sexual sins are done internally to you and not just external. Your soul is involved in these in these relationships. And people that are having casual sex with multiple partners are ripping their souls to shred and they start to get to be almost incapable of having true emotional feelings for other people because their soul has been so damaged. And it's very sad because you see these people and they they, get very cold in one sense, but they also have no strength of relationship with other people because of the damage they've done to their soul. Can God heal that? He can, but he usually doesn't do very much of it, especially if you're going to keep planning on doing it because it's not... It's it's a miracle for him to restore the soul. Can he make somebody so they can have the feelings again? If they totally repent and turn away from it, he can so they can have a relationship. But the problem is, when we destroy our soul, we have a hard time having a relationship with God himself because we have destroyed much of our soul and our relationship with other people. This is the reason Satan is working so hard to destroy the picture of marriage and the picture of family because if we can't understand family, we have trouble dealing with God. When, when we are called the bride of Christ and all we see is broken marriages, we have nothing to look at and say we lose the, the validity of the picture. When God says, I'm your father, and all you know is the father that's been abusive or distant or or whatever it might be, and... That is what you see of a father, and God says, I'm your father. And and there are people that go, I don't want a father. I know what fathers do. They they abuse me sexually, or they, they belittle me, or they make me feel worthless. I don't want a father. And this is why Satan is working to destroy families. This is why he's destroying families in the entertainment area, so that people don't understand what a family is, so it can be broken up. And when God says... We're a family. The church is the family of God. And people are going, no, I don't want you know, I know what families are like. They backbite each other and, and stab each other in the back all the time. This is why as Christians we need to build up relationships. Husbands and wives need to be built up, edified, taught, teach our young people how to have good marriages, what a husband is, what a wife is, what a father is, what a what a mother is. We need as churches to help come alongside of these families that are broken, because it's hard. My biggest concern for all of my kids is who are they gonna marry? They, yes, my kids have seen an intact family where a father was there, a mother was there, and and a good marriage, you know, marriage. The, the hard part is who are they marrying? Who are they gonna marry out there that's seen this same thing? There's gonna be problems that have to be dealt up with, which means sometimes we're gonna to have to come along when our, parent, when our kids get married and come alongside of them and say, Let's help you guys get going in the right direction. We as churches need to take families that are struggling with marriage and family and team them up with some people that have been at least somewhat successful. Or even if they've totally messed up but learned their lessons, they can teach them what not to do. But we bring people alongside of others that are can help mentor them and teach them. We've got tons of people here in this town that need people to show them how to be families, how to be how to be true husband and wife, how to be what God says. Now we have to get them in the church first to be able to make them want that, but we need to be praying for this. We need to be praying for this because there's issues out there. We see it all the time, even with some of our senior citizens out there that are, or haven't learned how to do these things. We are many generations away from people knowing what a family is in reality. We have generations of people that have been in poverty that don't know how to provide for themselves. We have generations of people who have never seen a father and mother together in the same household. And I've shared with you when my, my daughter was in preschool, 30 kids in the school and she was the only one in the 80s that had a mom and dad at home. Together. You know, that was in the 80s. It's worse today. We need as Christians to stand up and say this is what a family looks like. This is what a husband and wife looks like. This is what a father and mother looks like. And we go into the Bible and say this is what it is. This is getting into the practical day-to-day life that people have. And the challenge that I have for the younger people that need this is go find somebody to help you do this. If you want to live a biblical godly life and you don't know what it looks like, Find somebody in the church and even ask them, can we meet together once a week or once a month or, and just help me learn to be a father, be a mother, be a husband, be a wife. You know, how do I deal with my kids when they do these things? How do I become a better Christian family? And we need to see that. We need to, we need to seek out. And it's the same thing I've said. If you want to learn how to study the Bible, find somebody that knows how to study the Bible and say, can we meet once a month, once a week, whatever fits into both people's schedules. Teach me how. You want to learn how to pray, find somebody who prays and say, can we get together and just pray together? I want to learn how to pray better. You want to learn how to witness, you go find somebody who's witnessing. And you say, can we go out and share the gospel with some people? We look at what we're doing and we lift each other up and we go forward because we need each other. We all have weaknesses that we need help in, and we all have strengths that somebody else may need help in. And we work on being able to build them up and to bring them up. But some of it is we need to lead in ourselves and say, can I help you? But at the same time, those who are weak need to say, would you help me? Both people, and if both of us are starting to do that, then people are going to get help. People will get help in the areas that they're weak. They'll get help in what needs to be done. And we need to be able to lift up and care for one another. And this is what this whole chapter is all about. Seems like a whole bunch of rules, but it really is. God cares about us and tells us where to care for one another. The whole chapter is about that. Let's go ahead and close in prayer. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for this opportunity we have. Lord, help us learn to love one another and to really care for one another. Help us to live out what it is that you want us to learn from all of this. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.